Today we're completing our series on mindfulness with the topic of school. We spend a lot of our life in school, and one thing for sure, stress is at an all-time high in schools, with teachers, students, and parents feeling it from all sides, from the pressure to perform on standardized tests, to larger classrooms with fewer teaching staff, to complex and social issues that affect our students, and to the competition to succeed and to enter college. There's a lot of talk going on about improving curriculum. There are new course standards. There are new ways that people are thinking about improving the classroom. But who's going to tend to the emotional and social issues that affect our students and our teachers, the long-term stress, the anxiety, affecting those who live in our schools every single day? Mindful Schools is an organization that does just that. Mindful Schools has been providing in-school mindfulness programs since 2007, impacting over 18,000 children in 53 schools. Their adult courses have taught thousands of educators, social workers, psychologists, parents, and others how to use mindfulness effectively with children of all stages. The film Room to Breathe, which was shown on PBS stations, chronicles the story of transformation in a San Francisco public middle school. And today, we are speaking with Chris McKenna, Program Director of Mindful Schools, which is located in Emeryville, California. From 2009 to 2012, Chris McKenna was the Executive Director of the Mind Body Awareness Project, a nonprofit that pioneered the development of mindfulness-based interventions for at-risk adolescents. He has an 18-year history with mindfulness meditation and is on the Curriculum Advisory Committee of Dalai Lama Fellows and the Advisory Council of the Mindful Community in the UK. And finally, Honoring the Path of the Warrior, a project which teaches mindfulness to veterans of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Chris McKenna, welcome to Health Currents Radio. Thank you so much, Ellen. It's great to be here. So as I said, and as you well know from your work, there is really a definite need for the educational model to shift. And I'm just wondering from your perspective, what role does mindfulness play in helping our students and schools improve not only the learning outcomes, but the school environment itself? Yeah. You know, I, I think that the best way to kind of uh, start that question or to see it is to think about what the optimal conditions are for learning itself. You know, like how does how does learning actually occur in the human brain and the human nervous system? And I think what you're seeing with, you know, mindfulness and kind of related interventions around attention and self-regulation and emotion regulation is this realization we're getting kind of in the last 10 years as brain science matures and as the mindfulness movement generally grows is that the brain and the nervous system itself really need to be in a certain condition to take in information and retain it. And, you know, you see that in school, you see that in like a variety of contexts, but it's particularly important in school because you're getting kids who pretty much from the time they enter a school in kindergarten or even before that are basically barked at to pay attention. <laughs> so, you, so you have this kind of culture that's kind of screaming at kids to pay attention and thinking that they're not. Meanwhile, none of the adults know how to pay attention. You know, they're, they're just as dysregulated and stressed out and kind of fried as the kids are. 
So you have all these kind of dis dysregulated, misattuned people running around screaming at each other to pay attention. <laughs> and then you have this attention epidemic, you know, this fact that we're kind of screaming at each other to pay attention, but that it's really not working. Mm -hmm. And our, our kind of solution for that right now is to get really upset about it and to overprescribe pharmaceuticals and all sorts of other things, which most people don't think are working. And so the simple question in all of that is, if attention and self-regulation and the ability to really kind of tune into your own physical and emotional and psychological and mental state, if that's a, if that's a kind of linchpin life skill, why isn't it being taught as a life skill? Um, you know, even just a little bit. Like, isn't it weird that you would say that this is kind of one of the most important kind of commodities in learning, but you wouldn't dedicate any time during the school day to actually learning it from a science and technique point of view. So we think that's weird. And um, <laughs> we think that um, it's easy to change. So it, I, as you were speaking, I was thinking about, so something has really changed in the culture of school because if we look back to our parents or even our grandparents and how they learned, they kind of were in that environment too, but they seem to have learned. They got a better education. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting thing that, that we think a lot about. Um, one thing is just, you know, what what in childhood and adolescence, what are your sources of stability? You know, one, one way to mm -hmm. put this is when you look at a culture or a kind of family culture or a neighborhood culture, what are your perceived resources as a kid? Right. And my sense is like, yeah, it's like their education system might have still been post-industrial revolution. Like we might have had problems with it. It might not have been very good. But that the just even the ability to spend time outside every day for three hours, yes, <laughs> in a safe neighborhood. The uh, the kind of regulatory aspects of eating dinner at the same time every day with your family. The amount of time that you had with adults in your life. I mean, the adult time that teenagers spend with family members or just people in their neighborhood has gone way down. So all of these things, you know, if we if we see ourselves as these kind of relational mammalian nervous systems that need regulation mm -hmm. as as we kind of grow, you know, from kind of childhood and adolescence, the the kind of resources for that regulation and for that stability in the environment have basically gone down with the school climate kind of remaining the same. So what that's meant is that, you know, kids are kind of shuttled out to school, but it's not like they're able to come home and kind of get all that regulation. Right. So, so now in the kind of 21st century with the kind of, you know, with the economic problems people are facing with like, you know, like trauma issues I and mean, all sorts of issues in, in, in the communities we work in, you're just, you know, the kid is just not getting to a baseline sense of safety and kind of really able to find a place or a time or a way to really release that toxic stress. So it wouldn't be my preference to necessarily always do this in school, but, you know, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to do it, but it seems to me that something needs to be done in school at That's this point. Yeah, absolutely. I was I was looking over and looking at clips uh, from the film Room to Breathe, which is a documentary done on some of the work being done in a middle school in San Francisco with, with at-risk kids, with difficult kids, underachievers, and a lot of behavioral issues. And I was so impressed listening to the, the middle schoolers talk about the benefits of mindfulness and how it seemed to help them 
just deal with stress. I mean, for them to name stress, anxiety, anger, and and get in touch with it, and then say, you know, if I hadn't had mindfulness, I might have hit her, or I might have thrown chili on his pants, but I got to just breathe and check in with my body and just calm down and let it go. It was so uh, moving. And mm-hmm. uh, I just wondered if you could talk about what you've seen of the impact of mindfulness on on kids and on systems that are, like you said, not really having a lot of social support out there. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the first thing I want to say, have, having worked with kids for a long time, is that I don't, you know, there's this tendency, I think, you know, mindfulness is such a hot commodity right now. It is, <laughs> and, yes. In education and mental health. And I, and I really wanted to state for your listeners at the beginning that I don't think that there's silver bullets out there to the level of complexity of issues that we're dealing with. I think that mindfulness is part of the picture. And I think it can be an important part for some kids. Right. So I, I just want to state that in the beginning that I don't I don't particularly want to evangelize for something. There's something about the psyche in this country that about once every 10 years in education, we're hoping that whatever the latest intervention is, is going to kind of solve all of our problems. And it won't because there's still poverty. There's still right. you know, there's social structural issues. issues. Yes. Right. So, you know, so then so we look at that and we say, yes, that's true. So how can mindfulness be used skillfully in order to help the situation? And, 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 and you know, to your question, I think it does. And one of the main things that I think is particularly with adults, it, it just gets taken for granted. But the idea of, you know, we call it when we teach our curriculum, just this idea of having like a little bit more of an owner's manual for your mind and emotions. <laughs> I mean, just the idea, this basic sense of how emotion operates in the nervous system and your biology, mm-hmm. what motions re- kind of repeat themselves constantly in your own kind of unique life, you know, like what's the kind of traps or the setups or the ways that you get triggered. You know, what are the patterns that your mind is prone to? You can actually have these conversations with kids. Like, it's not rocket science. Yeah. And they're, and they're interested in them because, you know, at the end of the day, like, your mind is all you're left with. I mean, er- absolutely everything else is going to change developmentally. Most of the information that you're learning in school, particularly the current curriculum, is going to be irrelevant when you're working in your 20s. I mean, that's one of the reasons that there's so much curriculum reform conversation is that we're realizing we're not teaching the kids the things that they actually need so if all of the content that seems so important is shifting and you know that's kind of kind of like change into something else as they age what what are they left with well they're left with like needing to understand how to be a human being and how to have human relationships and in that way, you know, it, it seems silly to argue that mindfulness or these, this broader movement of social emotional learning can't be relevant. I mean, this is one of the main things that, they, that is going to follow them, family life, work life, personal life. You have to have basic emotional literacy. So for me, that's what we're teaching. That's the bottom line. We're teaching techniques, simple stuff that can enable getting your foot in the door around emotional and psychological literacy. And you do that at, at every level of development. I mean, I saw clips of you doing with kindergartners, and I saw you with middle schoolers. And, you know, you can't teach uh, mindfulness skills to kindergartners the way you teach it to middle schoolers. So- yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I think that, you know, in terms of technique, you know, a lot of good teaching, having like worked and trained a lot of people, a lot of good teaching has 
at its root kind of a storytelling aspect. Mm -hmm. So how are you aligning with the kind of understanding and worldview of the kids you're working with? And this is a big issue in education generally. You know, it's like, are we, are we giving culturally relevant material to the youth that are kind of under our charge? And I think it's no different than mindfulness. You know, it's like if I think about the best people that have taught emotional literacy and mindfulness and social-emotional learning, it's not that the techniques are different. You know, at the end of the day, you're trying to teach very simple ways of kind of tuning in and self-regulating that can kind of be done at any time. But the reasons for doing it and the kind of touchstones you're using to explain it from popular culture, you know, whether like you're bringing in sports analogies or like people in the NBA that use meditation. Mm -hmm. So there's all sorts of this, this kind of texture and universe that you're introducing them to is a very important part of making the practice accessible. As you speak, I, I think about what it really is when you cross all the cultural diversity, economic diversity, you're really talking about human being to human being and invoking those things in all of us that are human, how we feel and all those natural feelings that come up, you know, fear and anger and joy and sadness and all those things. Yeah, I, I, think that's, I think that's exactly right. And I think that that's, you know, when I think about our work, you know, over the past seven years or so and the arc it's taken, you know, even more than saying, well, we want to get a particular curriculum like in every school in the U.S. or we want districts to implement mindfulness. Almost before any of that, I would say our biggest priority right now is to work with classroom teachers and youth mental health professionals who have an appetite for mindfulness practice to really kind of take them up on that and help them develop it. Because the sensitivity that's going to come from that, the attunement skills, the ability to be present with the kids they work with, to kind of see them through stress and other difficulties, the practice itself is what is going to ultimately transform it. The curriculum comes after that. So I think that that's the other trick in this movement is that there's something grassroots about it on that level. You know, we're, we're interested in working with educators who want to be contemplative. So that, yeah, that was my next question. So thank you for answering it before I asked you. <laughs> because my question is, if you want to build capacity and, and, and bring this to thousands and millions of, of schools and people, um, I don't think we have millions of schools, but thousands of schools, you know, how do you build capacity? And, and so you're training teachers, you're training social workers and psychologists, and how long is their training and, and are... And I would assume, just from practicing mindfulness myself, that you can't teach what you don't do. So mm, that's how, right. How how does that work? Well, it's it's tricky because it's like you know you're you're pulled. I mean, I'll, I'll just set it up in this kind of big binary. You're pulled basically in two directions when you're doing this work in education. One direction is, what's the least that I can do in a school environment to affect the most change? So an example of that might be, well, the school doesn't have any resources for training. You know, like for whatever reason, they can't implement new programs. They still want to do something. And the idea of just having two minutes of mindfulness practice that the whole school does 
right as they start their day. And maybe even we supply the audio recordings for that, you know, like the guided meditation. You mean, so that's so, coming over the loudspeaker into the classroom? Be, this is, this is, I'm just giving you a hypothetical here. We that's cool. Do, we actually don't do this now, but it's just, it's just for your listeners to kind of think about. It's yeah. just like, there's all this training, but so just one category that we should all be thinking about, those of us that are concerned is, is there a responsible way to implement something that's kind of low maintenance slash free mm -hmm. that would be this kind of big, broad umbrella. So that's one end of the, the, the pool. The other end of the pool, the deep end of the pool, is creating teachers that really have like a fundamentally mindfulness-based outlook, you know, that are really embodying kind of, a, you know, relational awareness differently as the result of becoming sensitive in practice. So that's a whole another thing that requires a lot more training. And so to answer your question, we kind of tier our universe. You know, we want good classroom teachers who have a basic practice. You know, they've done like a mindfulness-based stress reduction course. We have a, our own kind of six-week intro to mindfulness. So after that, after there's like a basic orientation to the material and some kind of practice, we want to say that that classroom teacher or that social worker can start to do some very basic practices with their kids, you know, as kind of a group simple start. But for people that really want to learn how to do an entire curriculum or explain it to a bunch of different populations or really understand the brain science, you need longer. And that unit for us is a year. You know, that's kind of our, our longest training is spending 14 days of retreat with people and then about 10 months of online learning, you know, where we have like the Greater Good Science Center, all sorts of partners come in and do different pieces of the training. So that's our kind of deep end of the pool. We don't expect everyone to do that, but a lot of people want to do it. And I think that once those people start getting kind of re-released back into the education system, they themselves become nodes that affect their school community and the kind of staff in those communities. And are you in schools all across the country or just right now in California? Well, you know, we all kind of came up, I mean, I should say here that, you know, Mindful Schools originally, it, it, was, it was a project of another school. I mean, mm. you know, we were just a bunch of people who had this crazy idea to teach this stuff to kids. And most of us were doing it in a very low-key, unpaid way for a long time. Mm -hmm. This is particularly true before mindfulness was kind of a thing. You right. know, I mean, no, nobody knew what it was after, before a certain point. And then, you know, you've got 2007, 2008, things really start taking off. And so then, you know, it goes from teaching a few schools to, you know, like 53 or 54 in the Bay Area. And very quickly for us, there was just this question of how you grow this with integrity. And, you know, one option, you know, you look at all these larger nonprofits and you could have like Mindful Schools Seattle or Mindful Schools New York and mm -hmm. kind of empire build. And that was never our instinct. And that's actually why we started to do the training where we were like, you know, we want to give people our theory and kind of, you know, embodiment around doing this work. We want to kind of transmit something to other people in education. And then we basically want them to go back to their own environment and own it. So I think that that's really, particularly now, that's really the way this is growing. And yeah, I think we have we have programs running, I think, in 40 of the 50 states right now. You know, some of them are much top heavier, like New York has, has quite a bit more programs. But that's, a, that's something I'm actually encouraged by, is that we're getting a lot more people from rural communities 
and from like Midwest states, you know, from places that in the popular media are not associated with mindfulness practice, kind of taking our stuff. So that's heartening for us. That is very heartening. I wondered if you could just share with our listeners what a typical mindfulness lesson would be in a classroom, a kind of generic lesson, you know, because I know you work with different ages. Yeah. So, you know, we could like, well, we got, we just had some NFL games recently, but the, the, the metaphor I always like to use is like, you know, you think about like LeBron James, right? So like we're talking to teenagers, particularly, particularly boys who like sports, you know, I'll kind of get them to think about like, just imagine LeBron James, like shooting, you know, three or four jump shots in a row. And then imagine like, I'll ask him like, how many, how many jump shots do you think he shoots in practice to be able to make those jump shots? And I'll kind of guess. <laughs> and it ends up being like several thousand in a row. Basically, he's, <laughs> basically he's not missing. It's just like a machine. Wow. So then if he's like sitting there at the free throw line in the finals and he bricks that free throw, what caused that? <laughs> okay, right? I don't do sports. So what does brick that free throw mean? basically miss like he oh, misses, he misses the shot it. okay you know like so if, if someone who's basically a machine making shots is in another situation and they miss the shot and maybe not once but twice what is the cause there it can't possibly be like a physical motor skill cause right because we've already established that he's basically perfect yes so what's the cause so then everyone kind of thinks sitting there chewing on it and pretty much invariably, you come up with this thing called the mind. There's something in the mind. Mm -hmm. There's something in the nervous system. There's something in the biology. There's something in the stress response that's interfering, you know, or bringing in different kinds of information in the system that needs to be dealt with. And so then the question is, well, how, you know, is there a way to train that? You know, like all human beings deal with pressure whether it's survival pressure or emotional pressure or just the idea of feeling like backed into a corner, feeling overwhelmed, feeling like you don't have the resources to deal with what's happening. This is um, a universal experience. So the class from that, you know, even just having people feel their feet on the ground or just invoke the orienting response, you know, let the eyes go wherever they want in the room for a second, kind of get out of that free state in the nervous system free up the eyes and the visual field and just use that as an anchor. Just these simple little things that the kids can do kind of somatically to reset the system. That's usually where I start because they can, that's stuff that they can immediately take home and go play with. And they can relate to it right away. Correct. Mm -hmm. Are you tracking um, the children and teachers over a span of time to seeing what long-term effect uh, mindfulness training has been having? <laughs> to be honest, we're like looking for money to do that. I mean, you know, this, the, the research in this field is growing. You know, yes. we put out, I, I think, Mind Up and, and Goldie Hawn, or if they haven't already, are about to put out, I think, a study in science. But our, our, I think our, our latest research was 827 kids. Very good research design. And, you know, good, good kind of statistically significant hits around self-awareness and attention and the kind of things that 
we would want to move. But there's a lot more to be done, particularly as you say, you know, longitudinally. You know, you want to you want to have like a semester program or a year program, and then see what's happening to them next year. And to my knowledge, in the mindfulness and youth field, there's only one person who's done that. I think his name's Nimrod, and he's in Israel. He's kind oh, of like yes. the, kind of the John Cabot Zinn of Israel. But he's had kids there that started kind of a mindfulness and yoga program, I think in kindergarten and are now, I think he's been following those kids and they're in like 10th or 11th grade now. So that's very longitudinal data. And I think, I, I think in five years, we're just, everybody is going to have more data on everything. Yes. But, but yes, we, you know, we do need that and we're working toward it. Well, that's fantastic because I, people like that kind of data. They do. <laughs> it's true. So I wondered uh, as we, as we end our discussion, how our listeners could be involved in, in bringing, if they're interested in bringing mindfulness education into their school or to their uh, uh, teacher's union or their administration, what, what would be the steps for them to, to take to do that? I think the easiest thing, you know, we're aware of the kind of time and economic and stress-related pressures of educators. So, on the training side of our work, everything we've set up has been with the idea that particularly in the introductory phase, people need something very easy to plug into. So what I would encourage is if you're a parent in a school community or a mental health professional at a school or you have some idea that there are a couple of teachers there that want to learn mindfulness and maybe teach it eventually, mindfulschools.org. There is a very, very simple kind of like, you know, tiered training system there, most of which can be done online. And there's a huge encouragement from us for people from the same school community to do the courses together. And we can actually help people structure that so that the whole school community is kind of going through it together. So that's our, you know, and there's lots of opportunities to get trained by us in person. But for a lot of farther flung communities, like online is going to be the way that it's done, you know, at least at least for the kind of foreseeable future until this work is kind of everywhere. Even perhaps it'll infiltrate university level and when teachers are receiving their education training they'll be learning mindfulness as well well it's interesting you say that you know the the garrison institute which is a large kind of um contemplative think tank that's actually one of the projects that they're working on is looking at mindfulness and kind of accrediting programs so i think it's happening that's fantastic well thank you for doing this work and bringing it to our children and to our teachers because we're counting on them for the future and to be more embodied as they move forward in school and in their lives is a, is a great gift. So I want to thank you on behalf of all of our listeners for bringing this to them. Yeah, and thank all of you guys for listening and for your interest in this work. Excellent. And I just want to let our listeners know that on the mindfulschools.org website, you can watch a free film called Healthy Habits of Mind. And this describes why mindfulness belongs in education, and it shows mindfulness implemented in the classroom, as well as uh, science and the neuroscience of the brain, etc. And you can also watch the trailer from the film Room to Breathe on their website. Thank you so much, Chris, for being with us on Health Currents Radio. Thank you, Alan. That was such a wonderful way to have completed our series on mindfulness here on Health Currents Radio. And I'm so moved by the practice of mindfulness itself, how it's informed my life and my work. And I'm so impressed with how multidimensional it has become and how it is really beginning to 
become part of many threads in our society from healthcare and people who struggle with chronic pain and stress issues to our veterans who are struggling with PTSD to our schools and students and teens who are moving through a challenging and extraordinary stage of life and to our corporate leaders in the effort to bring more mindfulness and more mindful leadership to our businesses. I really feel strongly that mindfulness, when practiced and integrated, can really serve our humanity well. And I hope that this has been of service to you. You can listen to any of our past interviews on mindfulness by going to the website, healthcurrentsradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Pearl Natural or go to our Facebook page. And as always, you can subscribe to Health Currents Radio through the podcast store on iTunes. We're free, or you can go to Stitcher Radio. Thanks for being with us on Health Currents Radio. Thank you.